Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 646 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek Kim Cook, welcoming you to the show with a song from the band Arno Dicia and the Clockwork Wizards. The song is called Zeus, and you can find it on their release, Split 7-inch with Semi-Vortex. You can find them over at arnodecia1.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. They gave us permission to play this music here on the show. What's going on this week on Monster Kid Radio? Well, a lot of you know that Beth and I have been away. We went international. We went to Kuwait to help open the area's first permanent haunted house attraction and it was quite the adventure. Now, we're back in America now. Uh, came back a little early. Check out our most recent video over at our Team Death YouTube channel to learn a little bit more about that. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that as well. Team Death is spelled D-E-T-H at the end. And you can find it that way, too. Anyway, we're back here in the States. But things are still a little bit in flux. So we have been running a little behind on a few things. We knew that was going to happen, though. And a good friend of ours, fellow podcaster Steve Turek, once again volunteered. He reached out to me and said, hey, Derek, I'll record some more episodes for you. So that's what you're getting this week. He sat down with a longtime friend of Monster Kid Radio, musician, Monster Kid, all-around good guy, Kevin Slick, to talk about the original 1931 Dracula. Wow. I mean, this is a classic. We've talked about Dracula here on the show before with the late author Justin McCumber, but it's been a while. And, I mean, it's Dracula. It's Bela Lugosi. You can't talk enough about this film and why it's important, and it's a fun conversation that Steve and Kevin have cooked up for you today. Now, that's not the only thing you have this week. Of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without some amazing contributions from some of our even more amazing contributors. I'm talking about the Beta Capsule Review with the return of Ultraman Deep Dive with Mark Matsky and Kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland. That's all coming up well, right about now. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive-Thru Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. Motorized monsters. Fiendishly fun. And you make them walk with your motorized monster maker. You pour the colored plastics for OG Ogre. With extra kits, you make Harry Harry, Perry, or Bald. You choose the ears for Galaxon, the horns for Willy Weirdwolf. Motorized monsters. Design them. Make them. Get them. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review.
Return of Ultraman, episode 39, 20th Century Abominable Snowman, original air date, January 7th, 1972. A young couple, Hideo and Yoko, are in pursuit of the Japanese Yeti, said to appear every 12 years on Mount Gangen in Nagano. If Hideo obtains a convincing photograph of the creature, it will confirm his academic thesis and the two researchers will finally be able to get married. However, as the abominable snowman strides into view, Yoko stumbles and falls, and Hideo chooses to help her to safety. In the process, he misses getting the evidence that would prove him right, and Yoko urges him to chase after the fleeing cryptid. Sadly, Hideo goes missing on the mountain, and Monster Attack Team becomes involved in a search and rescue mission to find the couple. They succeed, but Hideo displays erratic behavior, renouncing the Yeti as a made-up legend. Go is able to renew his acquaintance with Yoko through Jiro's new caretaker, Rumiko, and her recollections help Go connect the dots between the snowman and the discovery of an extremely cold planet drawing near to Earth. At the same time, it's revealed that the source of the Yeti legend is actually alien Varduk, which is paving the way for an invasion of Earth using Hideo as a kind of avatar. Varduk grows to full kaiju size and begins flash-freezing everything in its path. MAT attacks from the skies, but the defense force is quickly overwhelmed by Varduk's icy vapor, and even Ultraman is not immune from the intense cold. 20th Century Abominable Snowman is the first in a loosely connected two-part winter horror series featuring snowy alpine environments and the monsters that love them, coinciding with two January release dates. Episode 39 is certainly enhanced by the scenic location photography, which in many ways is reminiscent of The Phantom of Snow Mountain, episode 30 of the original Ultraman series. Unfortunately, 20th Century Abominable Snowman suffers in comparison due to the fact that Ultraman's monster Wu resembles a Yeti, while Ultraman Jack's Vardic decidedly does not. Be that as it may, episode 39 is significant in that it offers us a glimpse of Jiro Sakata's new life under the care of the Murano family, to which he seems to be adjusting surprisingly well while providing Go with a potential love interest in Rumiko. Although at this point, that relationship seems appropriately cool. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. terrifying lover the world has ever known. Who will be his bride tonight? Horror of Dracula. Dracula, dead and yet alive for 600 years. Dracula, the human vampire who lusts for human blood. 
see Horror of Dracula. The greatest shock story of them all now achieves new heights of motion picture suspense. See Horror of Dracula and watch the fiend who rises each night from his coffin bed to seek the rendezvous that alone can keep him alive. See Horror of Dracula and watch those who came to destroy a monster stay to become his victim. See Horror of Dracula, but don't dare see it alone. The chill of the tomb won't leave your blood for hours. Horror of Dracula, all new and in flaming technicolor. The wolves drive their victims toward him. Dracula is the king of the vampires. <gasps> Bram Stoker's original horror classic, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. When the clock strikes midnight, all the evils of the world circle around us. Do know where you're going. The creatures of the night guard his castle. Welcome to my house. Count Dracula. I am Dracula. Take these. Against them, Count Dracula is powerless. Whoever falls beneath his spell craves the blood of living beings. The fight of the good against the Prince of Darkness is told again in this new and frightening version of a timeless tale. I was ordered to drive you to the clinic. Renfield, relax! Dracula pursues his victims by night, but at dawn he disappears. In his coffin, Dracula travels the world. Horror stalks the earth. <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, I should warn you. I have a number of patients here who must be kept in close confinement. Do not on any account venture beyond the first floor, please. A story of fear unsurpassed. There are kisses for us all. But isn't there anything I can do for her? Yes, you can give her a transfusion of your blood. The Draculas have ever been the heart's blood, the brains, the sword of our people. Dracula? <laughs> Masters of horror in this classic tale of terror. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, lives again, bringing fear to all. The lust for the blood of fresh victims allows him no repose. This is a time for vampires. Beware. <laughs> His is the kiss that kills. Those upon whom he nourishes himself sicken and die, and then become like him, vampires themselves. Back! Back! This man belongs to me. But that's no explanation. He who penetrates Dracula's secrets risks his life. Kill. This is the night of decisions. A night filled with horror in Count Dracula's castle. <laughs> Who is stronger? The first and finest of all horror stories, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Prince of Darkness. We wish you pleasant dreams. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland.
For the next three editions of Monster Kid Radio, guest host Steve Turek will be discussing the first three Universal Dracula films with Monster Basher and musician Kevin Slick. In issues 22 and 23 of Famous Monsters from 1963, Uncle Foy did the same thing and more. In a gigantic two-part article, he covered all of the Universal Dracula movies. The two parts spanned 32 pages and included a stunning 57 photos, many of them from Lugosi's personal scrapbook. Let's hear a small part of what was shared about the first film, our subject for today, Dracula. Come, my friend, don't be afraid. Put down that gun with the silver bullet. Break that annoying wooden stake. Don't insult my aristocratic nostrils with the odor of garlic. Wolfbane, bah, that is for superstitious peasants. Come, be brave. Join Bram Stoker, Dwight Fry, Edward Van Sloan, Todd Browning, and me in eternity. Turn this page if your heart is strong and your blood is rich and red. And let me guide you into the realm of the undead, Dracula. On 27 March 1931, the voice of Dracula was heard on the air to listeners in Hollywood, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, and environs. Bela Lugosi addressed the following message over radio station KFI. The message is reproduced from a typewritten sheet glued 32 years ago into Lugosi's scrapbook. I have the feeling that Bela composed and typed this speech himself, so I am presenting it in print exactly as it appears in his scrapbook, in his own spelling, grammar, punctuation. I read the book Dracula, written by Bram Stoker 18 years ago and I always dreamed to create and to play the part of Dracula. Finally, the opportunity came. Horace Liverlight, stage producer of New York, acquired the stage rights of the novel, and he chose me for the part. I have played the role of Dracula about a thousand times on the stage, and people often ask me if I still retain my interest in the character. I do. Intensely. Because many people regard the story of Dracula simply as a glorified superstition. The actor who plays the role is constantly engaged in the battle of wits with the audience. In a sense, since he is constantly striving to make the character so real that the audience will believe in it. Now that I have appeared in the screen version of the story, which Universal has just completed, I am of course not under this daily strain in the depiction of the character. My work in this direction was finished with the completion of the picture, but while it was being made, I was working more intensely to this end than I ever did on the stage. Although Dracula is a fanciful tale of a fictional character, it is actually a story which has many essential elements of truth. I was born and reared in almost the exact location of the story, and I came to know that what is looked upon merely as a superstition of ignorant people is really based on facts which are literally hair-raising in their strangeness, but which are true. Many people will leave the theater with a sniff at the fantastic character of the story, but many others who think just as deeply will gain an insight into one of the most remarkable facts of human existence. Dracula is a story which has always had a powerful effect on the emotions of an audience, and I think that the picture will be no less effective than the stage play. In fact, the motion pictures should even prove more remarkable in this direction, since many things which could only be talked about on the stage are shown on the screen in all their uncanny detail. I am sure you will enjoy Dracula. I am sure you will be mightily affected by its strange story. And I hope that it will make you think about the weirdest, most remarkable condition that ever affected mankind. I thank you. 
Like I said earlier, that is just a taste of the information that was shared in this mammoth article. If you love Universal's Dracula, seek out FM 22 and 23. They are indispensable for any fan of these classic films. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Of all the horror stories ever told, one towers above them all. The original masterpiece of the macabre. The undeniable terror of Bram Stoker's Dracula. spreads its shadow of darkness across Europe to Victorian England. A terrifying love story that reaches back into the dead past. A nightmare that stalks through the centuries to embrace the living. Many motion pictures claim to be horrific. Now comes one which reaches a new height in unabated terror. The Bram Stoker masterpiece, Dracula. There is no way in this life to stop me. The Dracula legend continues. Frank Langella is Dracula with Laurence Olivier from Universal rated R under 17 not admitted without parent Dracula the greatest lover who ever lived died and lived again Everybody, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Derek is traveling abroad and he asked me to help him out with a bunch of episodes filling in. So I'm Steve Rivers again, Joan's younger brother, coming in to guest host. And I'm going to be joined on this episode with Kevin Slick. And we're going to talk about the universal classic Dracula in just a minute. Um, Kevin's going to be joining me for two future episodes. We're also going to be doing Dracula's daughter and son of Dracula. So we got a little trilogy part happening as to when these episodes are coming out. That'll be up to Derek. So hopefully you guys will all enjoy them and have fun. But now without further ado, how are you doing today, Kevin? Uh, good, good. Uh, like you said, don't know exactly when this will be airing, but right now just enjoying a nice sunny autumn day looking at the leaves falling off the trees outside. It is a beautiful autumn day here. We have a light rain going on, but it's not one of those bad rains where it's like pouring. It's just a nice crisp weather with the crisp rain. It's, it's almost like when you have an apple and it's got that moisture on it type thing. And that, and that, <clears throat> so I'm walking the dog. I'm actually was eating an apple earlier when we were walking around and near the woods and stuff like that. So to me, it's the, the perfect autumn type day. That's, that's a perfect description of it. Uh, having grown up, grown up in the, in the Northeast during the United States, you know, I, I have fond memories of those sort of, uh, 
slightly chilly, kind of damp, kind of foggy sorts of, uh, of autumn days. Maybe that's maybe that part of the reason why I gravitated towards uh, these kind of horror films that we all love, because uh, when you go out on a day like that, and it's just, oh, yeah, I can just picture, you know, this being the opening scene in some film where there's some crazy old lady that lives in that house over there and what's she up to and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's the perfect day for these type of movies that you and I are going to be talking about. And for listeners, we're going to be actually talking about all three movies today, but you're going to be hearing them months apart, you know, and that kind of stuff. So it's going to be broken up, but it's a beautiful day to talk about Dracula universal. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Um, but be- just before we start talking about that, you've recently retired and you've been focusing a little more on your music career and stuff like that. So I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to talk about that you've recently put out. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I retired after last school year as a school teacher. And so now I have no idea what day of the week it is anymore because I don't go <laughs> into work every day. And so I, I, I'm often asking my partner, is this Friday? Is it Tuesday? What, what day is this? Um, uh, so, you know, that's, that's been my, my experience. Uh, and so I've been um, writing music a lot more, which I have always done, but I've been doing more of that uh, in the bluegrass and Americana world um, as, as somebody writing songs for other artists to record as, as well as myself. Um, the band that I play with currently, Orchard Creek Band, we have a new recording that is out this fall, and it's called Listening for Your Call, and um, been enjoying playing that in different locations. And, and the other big thing that I've been up to lately is, uh, as listeners may know, I live in Colorado currently, but we are planning on moving back east in the springtime, so... A lot of my time these days has been packing up stuff in boxes to get ready to move uh, back east and uh, hope to see a lot of you. I, I have a lot of friends, obviously, who live back there, and I tend to, to go back there a lot to the music stuff in places like Nashville and Raleigh, North Carolina, and things like that. So I'll be a lot closer to those places, and uh, I'll probably see a lot of you, hopefully, at some more of the conventions and such around the, uh, around the East Coast. That is good news to hear, and I'm glad that you're you know you're packing up and getting ready to move back to the homeland, so to speak, or at least the, the home coast area. And uh, yeah. that'll be that'll be cool. Yeah, yeah, no, looking forward to it. And looking forward to it being over. Those of you that have, have have packed and moved and things like that know that that mostly it it comes down to an experience of oh man, I can't wait till this is over. Well, yeah, it'll be over before you know it, and then it'll just be a memory, and and that's that's the good part. And hopefully, this is like your 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 permanent final move, where you 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 guys will have fun and not have to put up with all that hassle again. Yes, I think so. Unless, of course, um, uh, unless of course Don Reese ever gets his plan off the ground that he's talked about about founding a town called New Viseria that is just a town for fans of classic horror to go live in sort of like a classic horror retirement village, new Viseria. I think that could possibly entice me to move again. If, <laughs> if, here comes, if here gets that one off the ground. 
or, or at least get, or at least join some other guys and get a second place that you guys could rotate who lives there, you know, so you guys can have some um, time. <laughs> yeah. Just find a nice old haunted house someplace that we could uh, refurbish. That'd be great. Perfect. And, and then you want to have neighbors that want, you want to worry about disturbing you too much because your house will be haunted. They'll probably like, of course, I take that back. Knowing that town, what its whole thing is, you'd be the most popular house. Of course, yes. So, why I asked you to help me out with Derek's show, the first thing mm-hmm. you came up with was Dracula, and we'll talk about a little later on about Son of Dracula and Dracula's daughter. But you, you, what was your reasoning for picking this? Because you actually brought it up in the Facebook Messenger type thing. You, you wanted to revisit these for a reason. Well, um, probably a couple things. One, uh, it's not so long since Halloween when we're recording this. And uh, Dracula is the film that I watch every year at Halloween, Halloween night. That's always my my go-to film, Halloween night. So it's on in case any trick-or-treaters come to the house. That's what's what's playing on the screen. and then I thought about the fact that, um, you know, they made the Dracula, started Dracula. So I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. Then, you know, the Dracula family, let's just have the Dracula family reunion would be kind of an interesting thing. But um, one of the reasons I also thought about it is I've heard critiques of each of these films over the years, uh, various critiques of the films. And, um, I realize I might have a nostalgic sort of attraction to these films. I mean, I I saw a lot of these films in the theaters, obviously not the first release of them, but um, I remember going to see a double feature of Frankenstein and Dracula, probably in 1972, 73, something like that. They released those as a, in, in the theaters again. Um, I remember Ron Adams and I going to the, the movie theater in town. I believe we were riding in the back of his father's pickup truck. Of course, no seat belts or any sort of thing like that. Back in those days, we didn't, we didn't know such things as, as traffic safety and things like that. But um, remember going to see those films in the theater at that time. So, of course, they have a nostalgic kind of a attraction to them. But um, I think there's maybe some ways to look at these films. There's perhaps different, uh, a different way of looking at them than perhaps some people have in the past. And uh, well, maybe that would be an interesting thing to talk about, even though these are films that I think most people will certainly Dracula. Anybody listening to this program has seen that numerous times, probably. Uh, but maybe we could, present some different ways to look at it or think about it. Uh, Dracula's daughter and so Dracula, not sure exactly how widely viewed they are, uh, but I think they, they have some interesting elements to them as well. I agree with you. I think definitely Dracula's out of, out of the three is the most well-known. And I, I would say probably just on the average person, because Lon Chaney Jr. is in it, Son of Dracula would probably be the second most known, and Dracula's daughter would be the lesser of the three, knowledge-wise, not saying quality-wise, because we'll get to those when we talk about those in different episodes of um, what we think about them. But with Dracula, everybody knows 
Bela Lugosi and, and just the ultimate portrayal of Dracula, you know, for pretty, pretty much it set the mode for all the decades to follow all the movies. Everybody always refers back to this one. This is the template. This is the, the OG of Dracula presentation, so to speak. Yeah, and that, that presents an interesting uh, element, too, in that he, Lugosi, had a particular way of approaching that character, which uh, people who've read the novel know is is relatively different than the, the portrayal, portrayal of the vampire in in the original Bram Stoker novel. Um, Lugosi's much more suave and debonair and, and has that approach uh you know, that basically basically just fits the type of character he was typically playing in the movies at the time. If you see earlier Lugosi films, he is generally playing that sort of um, suave, debonair, usually foreigner, maybe aristocratic uh, character who's somewhat mysterious in the in the storyline, whatever is going on. And so he basically is playing that, that same character, it just happens to be the character that's also a vampire that we know and love from that story. Um, so he portrays it in a certain way. And then I think an interesting thing is later incarnations, film incarnations of Dracula, you know, are all going to play against that in some way or another, either very, you know, successfully or maybe not so successfully. I think, for example, one of the things that, makes Christopher Lee's performances so successful and powerful is while he was also, you know, incredibly handsome and suave and, 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 uh, very smooth. He was much more forceful, much more physical, much more, um, energetic in, in his way. And that provided an interesting foil to, to play against. And so I think, that's one of the reasons why I love his performances as Dracula as much as Lugosi's, uh, because they're they're different. It's just coming from a very different way, and it's a very different uh, performance. And some of that might have to do with with the filmmaking. Nineteen thirty one versus nineteen fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty, that sort of thing. Um, you know the the early. I mean Dracula. You see, I mean, I think the closest in, in one of the scenes where he's about to, you know, bite the victim on the neck, he gets probably within about five inches of the neck before it, it fades. You know, um, later on, that was, you know, they went the full Monty, as it were. We got to see the blood and got to see the, the fangs, the whole thing, you know, everything was right out in the open. Um, and that's part of what, that's part of, for me, what is interesting about one of the things that's interesting about the Lugosi Dracula is just the filmmaking of that of that era. I, I think so, and also it could have shown more if they chose to, because it was still pre-code. So they could have gone yeah. into some things, but they there was a directorial or screenplay, whichever somebody chose not to do it. Um, but you know, it's like one of the victims who was selling stuff on the street, you know, he takes her and he back behind the wall and then you hear her scream. And so you, you really, yeah. you just see, you just know she's a victim, but you don't know what exactly happens. And then you see later her body, 
and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is a different time where it might not have been socially acceptable to show certain um, images on the screen, even though technically they could have because of the code as you brought up. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, in that, the, uh, the, of course, the Spanish version that, that a lot of people I would imagine are familiar with that as well. Um, which I'll just, you know, just come out right out now and say, I don't really care for the Spanish version of it much at all. Um, it's interesting to me, but I don't think direct, I don't think the directing is as interesting. Certainly the, 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 uh, actor playing Dracula is less interesting, but since you mentioned that one of the things, um, that I recall in, in, I think it's in some of the extras that are on the Blu-ray set, is um, the actress um, that played Mina, the, the Mina character, Lupita Tovar, I believe is the name. She comments that when she was, when they were making the film, because you know they were filming it on the same sets, just like alternating, that she noticed that um, the costumes in the English version were much more chaste and much more. Uh, formal and and modest and what she was wearing these very low cut kind of dresses and things like that so and you're right it, there's certainly films of that era even american-made films that are pretty racy of that era and they could have they certainly could have gone there if if they wanted to but yeah i think um and maybe that's in keeping with the overall um feel of the movie too um which we can talk about a bit. And I think it's just one of the areas where some people that I've heard critique it or say they don't really care for it, the things that they've they've commented on that they don't they don't seem to like so much in the film. Uh, I will admit it out of the Dracula's movies, you know, the ones that are just Dracula, you know, Christopher Lee and all the ones that like Franklin Jellas and all the ones that have come out since. And even Nosferatu, I can throw that in there. Yeah, as a movie, this one doesn't hold up to me as well for repeat viewings as some of the other ones do. But the performance of Lugosi is just so spectacular. It's it's the one. It's it's right up there with Lee. You know, um, both of them are like they set different templates up for everybody else to follow and or, or and, and and to go with and how to do it. One is the the both of them are suave, but one is more. Um, as you say, the aristocratic, more, not, not, not to say passive, but he's not physical, not less physicality, where Christopher Lee's is this physical, imposing presence where you can see him glide effortlessly up the stairs, carrying luggage or doing different things, and, and you just feel so intimidated by him. And the other performance, of course, is Dwight Fry's Renfield, which set everybody's up. It was even spoofed so well in Love at First Bite. You know, and, mm-hmm. and it was just like with the laugh, which I'm not even going to attempt because it's just it's just so good. It's just so classical um, how he does the the the, the Renfield, you know, um, laugh. Uh, I, I almost almost attempted. I was like, no, no, I'm, don't go there because it, it's it's just going to be a pale imitation. <laughs> friends don't let friends do it. I think actually one year at Monster Bash. I'm thinking, I don't know, uh, I believe we had a Renfield laugh imitation contest. I think, I'm, I'm trying to remember that. For some reason that comes to mind that that was something we did one time when, you know, people got up on stage and did their best 
impersonation of Dwight Fry as Renfrew. It might it might have been one of the times when we had uh, Dwight Fry Jr. at the Monster Bash, which was some of the very early Monster Bashes, and he was a he was just a marvelous fellow. He was a wonderful fellow to talk to, uh, indeed. Yeah, I think there there. So you were touching on the the acting of the different different characters in it, which I think is is important. Um, the filmmaking of, of Dracula, as I see it, and this is a place where I know a lot of people have critiqued it and said, like, well, you know, especially in the second part of the film, it moves too slow, or it's not it's not interesting. You know, once we get out of the big castle with the cobwebs and everything like that, it's not interesting to me. Um, here's a couple of ideas I'll throw out that you might be interested in or our listeners might be interested in. So the film, obviously, you know, is directed by Todd Browning, a director who made, I don't, I don't know, probably most of the films that Todd Browning made were silent movies. I, I don't, I mean, I don't remember offhand how long he uh, continued to work into the sound era, but most of the films he made were silent films. I see Dracula as being a late era silent movie. Um, and by that, I mean the type of pacing, the type of camera angles, the types of shots, uh, the way the the action is portrayed is very much like a silent film of that era. In fact, there's certainly lots of places in Dracula where there is no dialogue. There's, you know, the sound effects or whatever going on, but it's essentially a silent movie. Um, and they're using some well, not title cards, but using some uh, title overlays, you know, for when they're on the ship or when they're in London or things like that, just to tell you where things are. Those are I see those as direct kind of holdovers from the silent era. Uh, and if you've watched late era silence, I, I keep using that phrase. I'm talking about silent movies, primarily from maybe 1925 on to 29, sort of the end of that era, that last five years or so of silent films. Uh, watch a film like Flesh and the Devil with Greta Garbo and John Gilbert, or my favorite movie of all time, Sunrise, 1929. Uh, watch some films like that and see the way the actors are moving and the way the, the direction is, is happening. Uh, think about Dracula. I mean, this is, they were still making silent films in 1929-1930. So this is the really earliest era of sound movies. Uh, so I see the the whole direction, the whole look, the feel as being very much of that silent era. And that's a different type of film-watching experience. I know you've watched some because we, we talked about uh, Sunrise on here. And watching a silent movie is very different than watching a sound movie as far as the way you have to kind of pay attention to it and sort of accept a slow development perhaps of of characters and scenes and things like that. Um, and that's a very different thing. And if you're not used to it, you know, it'd be like listening to, um, well, I don't know, I, uh, until, until I really first went to a situation where someone could explain to me the way opera worked, it was. I didn't understand what that was all about and why why people were you know singing a little bit and then stopping and doing something else and you know or, or 
listening to certain types of jazz music or something, and you know, someone explains it, or watching a hockey game, exactly like, what the heck are they doing? <laughs> you know, what's all the fighting and stuff? You sort of, someone explains it, oh, I get the rules now. And so I think with a, with a film like Dracula, understanding the way that silent movies were typically made and directed goes a long way to kind of helping you sort of, uh, I don't know, have, have a way to, to watch it and sort of get where, where they're going for. Um, well, I understand where you're coming from. And just for listeners, the Sunrise Movies talk about that's all on a diecast movie podcast. Mm-hmm. So if people are trying to find it, you won't find it on Monster Kid Radio, but if you go over to the other show. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a hybrid where it's a silent mm-hmm. movie and a sound movie put together. And there's going to be pros and cons as they do that transition period. And from mm-hmm. what I, my research going into this, uh, Todd Browning did eight movies that were sound. So Dracula was one uh-huh. of eight. So the vast majority, as you, as you alluded to were silent. So that, and that was his normal thing. I think this was like his second or third sound movie. So it wasn't his first mm-hmm. one, but it was early on in the process of him learning and everybody, the whole crew, not just the director, but the whole crew is learning. All the actors are learning how to do this, this new thing, this new fangled thing called sound, you know, and how to play it out and how, where the microphone should be and sound effects. I mean, uh, as, as this movie has been known from for everybody, it, it's, there's no soundtrack. There's no score except at the very beginning and a little bit when he's at the um, opera house or the, the, the orchestra you know, where they show up there. But I mean, really, there's no score for the movie. There's been one that was famously done that you can listen to as an alternative track. But I, I did not listen to that for this episode. I went with the original because I wanted to go with the way people would have saw it at the time or as close, or as, close as we can get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that is a is is very true. The the um, the technology at that time uh, was was very new, and 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 looking at it from that standpoint, um, you know, it's it's remarkable that the sound is as good as it is. You know, given like there were some other, you can see some other early sound films that uh, the sound quality is not nearly is is good here um and a lot of these actors also had experience on the stage as Lugosi certainly did so they knew how to how to project and how to how to do that sort of thing but um one of the things that you'll see in in um some of the silent films that i mentioned there uh is often there'll be a scene where there's several people in front of the camera or on the on on set and something's going on, um, and you might be drawn towards maybe the one or two actors that are doing something in that moment. But often, the way the other actors are reacting, you know, is is a big part of it. And you see that there's several scenes where there's Lugosi and Edward Van Sloan, um, you know, going at it back and forth as they're sort of starting to determine who's who, but, um, you've also got, um, David Manners in there floating around in a lot of the scenes too, or, um, uh, Herbert Bunston, uh, Dr. Seward, 
they're often all in their set together. And the reactions of all those different characters and the way they go back and forth with each other is often pretty fascinating. I mean, I think the, the, the Lugosi, uh, Van Sloan interactions are incredible uh, in, in several of these. The one where he shows him the mirror and, and you know, he reacts, smashes it. And then just watching his face, again, this is sort of a slow burning scene. It might not stand out to some folks, but watch that scene where Lugosi smashes the mirror and then steps back and just sort of composes himself over about five seconds before he turns and apologizes. And it's it's a remarkable um, portrayal of, of this, like going from this like crazed lunatic sort of thing to this kind of like, I'm getting myself together now. I am, I am the count and now I, you know, and this sort of thing. Um, fascinating. I love, I love that sort of thing. And that to me is something that you see in kind of a quiet movie. And, and I think of Dracula as a pretty quiet movie. The, the, the a lot of the uh, drama is implied and it's sort of psychological, um, and if we're you know, speaking about other Draculas, um, compare this to, say, uh, Christopher Lee and the Horror of Dracula. That's a more physical. So he says more physical, the action is more physical. The action is more uh, dramatic in that way. Um, this, well, everything is, most everything is implied because, again, you're not seeing any actual neck biting. Um, so it's implied that you know what's going on. Um, but there's this sort of slow burning, slow developing feeling of we're kind of helpless. You know, like we know, like, I mean, they figure out pretty quickly that, uh, that housing and, you know, figures out pretty quickly what's going on. And yet there's another 20 minutes or so of the film where it's kind of like, yeah, we know who it is. We know what's happening, but darn if we can stop them, you know, we can't do anything about it. That I think that's a fascinating drama. And what I like about that scene that you brought up when he's, after he composed himself and he apologizes, he also mm -hmm. says, and I'm sure you know, Van Helsing will explain to you why after I, you know, yeah. you know, like, like I'm not going to explain it to you. He's going to tell you all about it. I'm just going to leave yeah. in, in that kind of thing because he just knows like this, this he was out at, but I thought it was interesting with Van Helsing was kept looking at the mirror on the cigarette mm -hmm. box when he's realizing what's going on. I mean, and I think he must've did at least three looks. There's three distinct times. Like he's looking at it and John Harker, David Manners is next to him facing mm -hmm. it, you know, but, but next to him and see, you, you know, when you're next to somebody, you're going to see them keep like looking down, like, and eventually you're yeah. gonna, just, I mean, normal human curiosity, you too are going to look to see what is he looking at? And you're going to look yeah. in that mirror and then you would notice, but he never did. I mean, he, he kind of realized, but he never, and I thought that was something that was missing a little because that would have been something, a, a normal human reaction would be, I, yeah. I got to take a look. You know, if you walk out of a building and you see a bunch of people staring up at the, the building. You know, and you, yeah. when you see one person, you might not notice it. But when you, if you see two or three people or somebody, you know, drawing their attention three times, you two are going to look up. Even if you're looking at, if there's nothing there, you, you still are going to like, well, what are they looking at? You might not see it. Or you might ask, what's everybody looking at? As you two turn to look, 
And of course, he didn't want to interrupt the stuff that's being said because other people were talking. But, you know, he, he would have, I, I think, naturalistically would have looked. And I thought that was kind of a interesting acting or directing choice not to have him look. Yeah, I, I wonder about some scenes like that um, in what I assume is just the, the script, the scripting of the of the scene and the, and the writing of it, because you certainly could have had that scene take place. Like you said, they, they cut like three times to uh, the house thing looking in the mirror. And an obvious, what would seem like an obvious scene to me would be a shot of Parker looking at the mirror and then looking like surprised, look up at Ben Helsing, surprised, and Ben Helsing might be kind of like, Shh, don't don't say anything yet, or something like that. They could have played that sort of scene. Um, there, that I mean, the scripting of of the of the storyline, and I, I um, don't know compared to the the script of the of the show of the play, because I know that was that was instrumental in the whole creation of the film as far as using. Uh, John Balderson, I believe, is the the writer that, that adapted it, his work for it. Um, yeah, they certainly, I mean, certainly Harker comes off as, well, everyone does, except for Van Helsing, comes off as pretty clueless <laughs> to, <laughs> to a rather alarming, alarming degree. Although <clears throat> it may be, you know, I don't know, uh, it, it can, it could be that that was intentional in that um, there, you know, early on there's the scene where after they've met Count Dracula in the, in the opera house, uh, Lucy and Mina are talking and um, she says something about, give me someone more regular. And Lucy says, you mean like John? He goes, yes, like John, you know, and the, so they're, they're really, maybe it was an attempt at, at portraying, the character of Harker as this like really normal average guy who's just, you know, he doesn't know the supernatural from, you know, baloney or whatever. Um, but it, and, and that, that's, you know, he is such an ordinary average guy. He's not even thinking about the possibility of such, of such things. And, and the <clears throat> Dr. Seward, again, being this, this very, you know, uh, scientific, but just do things by the book, don't question things, sort of character or something like that. Perhaps that was seen as, as a way to kind of um, set them apart from the Van Helsing character a bit, maybe or something. I don't know. It could very well be. And obviously, it's a to me, it's a three-person story for the most part. Mm -hmm. There's three main characters, you know, Dracula, Renfield, and Van Helsing. To me, they're, they're the most interesting, they're the they're the characters that draw you in when they're when Van Helsing and Dracula are on the scene in the scenes together. You were just mm -hmm. you were just riveted between the interaction between the two actors with the reaction and action that they're doing. So they're they're playing off each other beautifully, and how they go through it. And of course, Renfield, you know, Dwight Frack comes in and just steals all these different scenes. Uh, so you always you always are drawn to you. So you have three charismatic performances, and then you have David Manners, and mm -hmm. it's just I don't know where the I can't blame him because you're you're stuck against in scenes with one almost always one of these three guys <laughs> in there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes two or you know two of them at the same time, and you're just going to get you know 
put to the side. He's just, as you said, he's just regular. And then you got, you got these guys here that are just so dynamic and you got regular and and, and you just can't help it. It's just, he's not able to raise to the level they are. And it could again be the way it's scripted and other stuff, but there are things as you and I've both seen in lots of films where some people are given material that isn't the grace, but they're able to make something out of it to still make their performance unique and uh, memorable with that. So there is no such thing as a a small part. It just depends how you portray it and how you go about doing it. And I think, you know, somebody else in that role could have brought more to it. But then again, he's not one of the main things you're there for. You're not there for John Harker. You're there for Dracula, Van Helsing, Renfield, you know, and, and how it all goes that interesting little battle of wits between the two of them and Renfield whose loyalties go whichever way the wind is going at that particular time. Yeah. Well, and David Manor certainly played that character a lot. Uh, you, you look at him in, in any number of, of films, uh, Mommy or Black Cat or whatever like that, and he's basically playing the same character. Um, he's, he's the love interest of the, of the woman um, who, you know, uh, almost always has her just about stolen by someone uh, infinitely more interesting, but also infinitely more evil in, in any of the situations. But, um, yeah, that, that, I think that might have just been, you know, there, there's certainly, I'll, I'll grant people, there's certainly elements of a film like Dracula that bear the obvious stamp of this is how we're going to make movies in this era. This is what we're going to do. We are going to have, you know, a little bit of uh, sort of comic relief. We're going to have some sort of goofy characters in there, like um, the um, uh, Martin, who's the um, the guy that works in the, the asylum there or something like that. You know, he's going to be a little bit funny and do some kind of humorous stuff that's just sort of, you know, and I don't know, I guess I have, I have mixed feelings on that. I don't think it totally destroys the, the mood of the film for me, but I could certainly do without them, too. It, it, would, be, it would be fine. Uh, part of what it is is those, those scenes are so brief. Um, and to be honest, the, the brevity of the film is one of the things that I love about these movies is... Um, Certainly, some of my favorite movies of all time: uh, Intolerance, Napoleon, uh, Reds. These are movies that are three, three and a half hours long, or you know, four hours, five hours long, something like that. Um, I've liked some really long films, but I really love these universal films that clock in at about seventy minutes. You know, um, because there's no wasted motion or moments. It's just let's get right to the story. Boom. Okay, here we go. Um, and again, in a film like, um, for me, this film could have been rather dull if it had gone on much longer because it is a very slow movie. It's a very slow paced movie and the action is very slow and it's kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a sort of slow burn and it works in that, in that time limit. I, I don't recall offhand how long the movie is. I think it's like 75, 80 minutes long, somewhere in that range. So it's, 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 yeah. it's definitely, you know, it, um, not long. It, it moves 
it moves at its own pace. And I know for, as a gateway to younger people, like if we were bringing in a younger generation, I can see where that could be a barrier in this particular film because the action that's happening is at a different pace than most movies that have been, that have come out the last 20 some odd years or more. Uh, so that, mm-hmm. that that's going to throw people off that are in their twenties or younger. Uh, there's always exceptions yeah. to the rule, but I mean, as a general thing, I think that this, that this movie was to have come out nowadays. It would be interesting to see how it would have done at the box office. If it was done with the same um, template, but it came out when it, it came at the right time to do the right thing. And it did huge, huge at the box office. And one of the things I noticed for the first time, and I've probably noticed it before, but this is the first time I consciously noticed it. When Renfield is at Dracula's castle and Dracula is ascending the stairs. And there's a scene when, when he, he looks back and Renfield has a startled look in his face. And I guess I never picked up on why he was startled. It's because it did dawned on me this time. He walks through the cobwebs without breaking them. And then Renfield has to go up yeah. in this, this wall of cobwebs. He has to use the cane to get him down. And you can just see his reaction is fluffing. How did he go through that and not disturb this? This There's no way in the world he could have walked around them or whatever, but he walked through the cobwebs yeah. without disturbing them at all. And I, I just thought that was fascinating because it shows you right away how supernatural he is, which was already mm-hmm. established a little bit with the villagers prior to that. But this was his first time experience that there's something different here. And, or did I just imagine it, but I can't imagine it because of the cobwebs are there. So it had to have happened, mm-hmm. but it couldn't have happened. You know? so it's, yeah. it's an interesting dilemma. Yeah, that's, I mean, and were it me, that's where I would be hightailing it out of that castle in a hurry, because I wouldn't have stuck around to see what happened next. But, um, yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point about um, the evolution of filmmaking and the, the, the ways people make films and what people expect out of seeing a movie. Um, and, and, yes, I would say that watching a film like this needs to be, and that's kind of my, I guess it was part of my thought in talking about it, is that it needs to be presented in a way of this is a different sort of experience. This is not, this isn't, you know, the latest Marvel blockbuster. Uh, it's not an Avengers film. Uh, and, I, and I love those too. I go to, go to see them every, every time they put out a new one. Um, but it's, it's a different sort of thing. And, um, I think it's, that's perhaps one of the one of the things that those of us that love these kind of movies can think about or can work with is the idea of how do you present them to younger audiences? How do you present, or just how do you present them to an audience who is not really familiar with it? Because there's certain, you know, I mean, one of the things you can also see in, in a film like Dracula is you can see this whole sort of dictionary of uh, encyclopedia of film, you know, tropes uh, in the horror genre start to emerge in these early films. And it's like, oh yeah, that's where, I mean, just the fact that there's, there's cobwebs all over the place and stuff like that, like, you know, that started someplace. That didn't just appear, like that started someplace where someone said, this is what makes a place look creepy, is 
spider webs all over the place. Um, and knowing that that's part of that, you know, uh, filmmaking decisions that those people did, that's kind of fascinating, I think. Um, and it's, so it's basically, yeah, it's basically just that to enjoy it, watch it in a different way, watch it with a different set of expectations, watch it for the slow kind of action, watch it for the, you know, the interaction of the different characters. Uh, another scene I love where again, you see this sort of slow changing of the characters is, um, uh, where Lugosi and Van Sloan are facing off and he's, Lugosi's trying to, you know, uh, hypnotize him basically, you know, and he's got the, the hand with the gesture and he's like, come her. It's a really, you know, extend, extends it, you know, come her, this sort of thing like that. And you watch that phone's face start to change, like he's starting to fall under the spell and then he breaks out of it. You know, that's, to me, that's a really fascinating little piece, but it's kind of subtle. It's not real obvious what's going on. Um, you know, you watch it for those kind of moments. You watch it for those um, those little bits of action where the characters are evolving and changing and really showing on their face what they're feeling. Um, yeah, that to me, that's what's one of the things that makes that film so fascinating. And I think it's just a beautiful film to watch. I think Bela Lugosi is a beautiful human being. I mean, he looks so good. It looks so good in that film. Um, you know, it's, I think it's just wonderful. And then the sets, I mean, the, the sets in the beginning, yes, the, the, the castle, those are just gorgeous as far as that whole thing goes. Um, granted the, the scenes later on in the, in the, uh, asylum and the offices and things that got maybe less fascinating, but still, those are some beautiful looking actors in there doing their thing. One of the things I wanted to bring up just before we end this episode, and I don't think she gets a lot of credit, but Helen Chandler as Mina, mm-hmm. the scene with her and Harker when they, when she's on the balcony or whatever, the outside mm-hmm. area and she is clothed, you know, Dracula's got her influence on her and she's talking about the night and how she just enjoys it. And he's like, what's different, but the way she's able to play up with the energy and things. And then when he's sitting there and she's just starting to look at his neck, you know, and just, you can see that hunger there showing up in her face. And I thought she did such a good job of trying to, you know, show that character change and how she is going for the metamorphosis and how she is now progressing to the, the side of being a vampire and those kind of things. I thought that was very well done by her. And I don't think a lot of people give her credit for that. Cause we, again, we usually talk so much about the other three because they're so, but yeah. she did an excellent job in that. And again, I hate to say, I, I hate to pick on David, but here he is again, you know, again, getting uh, the, the thankless role is being the straight man, you know, to everybody else's performance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's good. Good point because she um, it's true. In a lot of the films, she looks like this sort of porcelain doll of a character, you know, that's just sort of there. But yeah, she really, you know, lights up in in those in that the scene you're describing there, uh, and it is wonderful. She's almost she's got this sort of manic, you know, way she's delivering things, and it, it's it's great. And then that look 
on her face. Yes, and she's like closing in on his on his throat. Uh, it makes me makes me wish that somewhere in one of these films they had given David Manners a role like that where he had to change from the sort of mild mannered ordinary you know logical good looking guy that gets things done into this kind of frantic character what what would that have been like I would have I, I would have loved to seen that because he as a person he was a fascinating person he was very much into the metaphysical and supernatural and and such things as that and um, wrote extensive uh, journals on his sort of usings on on the uh, supernatural world and metaphysics and things like that uh, I bet he could have probably done something really surprising like that that would have been really wonderful to see I think so too and you know, I, I don't want to sound like I was picking on him too much. It was just the other performances are just so high level at that time. And and to be the straight guy is a tough role to do because, you know, you have to sacrifice and let if the director and the script is calling for that performance to shine, then you have to um, sacrifice your ego and let it go that way. You don't want to be over, you know, um, stealing the scene from them when it's their scene at that particular mm-hmm. time. So there is things that, you know, like I said earlier, you could do, to make it interesting, but then you're also going to be careful of uh, not crossing that line to where you're drawing attention to the wrong spot uh, that they're yeah. looking for. So uh, in his defense, he might've been, you know, you got to do what you're paid to do. Yes, I, I would agree. I think, I think he, he is a, you know, he's been in so many of the films that we really love and he's always playing that character. And, you know, maybe that was, maybe that was the thing at universal was like, Oh well, we know who who can who can nail this character. Let's get David on in here. He'll he'll do it because he's he's great at that. And it, it's a good it's a good point. The person playing the 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 ordinary straight role guy has to be there next to the Bela Lugosi, you know. And that's what makes again that's what makes that whole thing a fascinating sort of. Uh, what was a romantic or or that sort of thing too? It's like, well, when you see those two characters together, you know, it's no wonder that that Lucy and maybe Mina's a little bit more attracted to the guy that's like really gorgeous than the guy that's like, well, he's pretty good looking, but he's not, you know, he's not that fascinating. Uh, you know. No, I mean, yeah, I think you and I would also come up some second billing to Lugosi. I mean, it's just the way it is. <laughs> But I do know this. You definitely bring your A-game every time, and thanks for coming on and helping me with Derek's show on this episode. And I know you're going to be joining me, the listeners. um, Kevin's going to be joining us for Dracula's Daughter and Son of Dracula in future episodes of Monster Kid Radio. But for now, we're done with Dracula. I want to thank you again, Kevin, for joining me. Well, thank you. I'm always always glad to talk about... uh some of my favorite films, and particularly De Lugosi as Dracula. Okay, so a couple of things. Uh, so this was sent to me as if it was going to be part one of a three-part run with Steve and Kevin. Well, I, I don't have the other recordings, and I don't even know if they exist at this point, because I know Steve had some health issues. He's talked a little bit about this over on his Facebook page, but... Uh, the bottom line is, is that Steve is in no position to be recording a lot of podcast material right now. So 
whether or not we get that second and third Dracula family reunion episode series thing with Kevin anytime soon, it's kind of up in the air. Steve is okay based on his last post and the last communications we've gotten from him here at Monster Kid Radio. He just needs some time to recover from some things going on with him. So stay tuned for that. Keep your fingers and tentacles crossed for Steve. And Steve, thank you for doing this. I really, really appreciate you offering to do this for me. I mean, I always feel bad reaching out for help. And that's just the thing with me, a character flaw. I have a hard time asking for help. I'm working on that. It's going to be a lifelong thing for me, I think. So when somebody steps up and says, hey, you're going to be gone for three months. Let me do all of your Monster Kid Radio work for you. It's really hard for me to say yes without feeling like I'm taking advantage. Steve never makes me feel like I'm taking advantage of him. And I just really appreciate all of his support of Monster Kid Radio. And more importantly, and I still consider him a dear friend, even if he didn't do any of this. I appreciate his friendship. And Steve, when you listen to this, if you listen to this, know that Beth and I have been thinking nothing but positive, warm, fuzzy thoughts for you of the darkest kind. I mean, we're monster kids when we were in Kuwait and where we are here now in the States. So get well soon, my brother. And Kevin, thanks for being part of the show. Now that all said, we're going to continue to honor Steve's work because next week on the show, we're playing another recording that he did before he had his health stuff happen. We're going to get our kaiju on, which seems fitting because, well, Godzilla minus one. Oh my, that was one of the very first things that Beth and I did when we got back to the States is we went to go see that because it wasn't playing in Kuwait. We saw Godzilla minus one. Did we like it? Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit next week. You're going to hear from Jeff Pollier as well. He's going to talk about it, but we're going to get some classic kaiju action as well because next week, Steve is sitting down with his podcast partner, Alistair Hughes, to talk about the terror of Mecha Godzilla. Oh Yeah. I love me some hot kaiju action. Terror of Mechagodzilla has some of the best. I'm excited for that conversation. That's coming up next week. You can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Follow links to everything that we've mentioned here on the show over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. Over there, you're also going to find our contact information. You can email me anytime about anything at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and Leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2484. Did you see Godzilla Minus One yet? If you did, call in a review and I'll include you in the mix next week. You want to talk about anything kaiju related? You want to talk about Dracula? You want to talk about anything that we've talked about on the previous over 600 episodes of Monster Kid Radio? Well, call in. Drop me a line. Let me know. We'll include it on the show. Now, my intention is to get this episode out in time for you to make plans if you happen to be in the Chandler, Arizona area. It's kind of near Phoenix and that sort of thing, because there is a store down here called the Terror Trader. I had no idea this place existed. Beth and I stumbled across it completely by accident. It's a Halloween emporium, and it's opened all year round. I think a few days off during the week, but Halloween 365, man, it's awesome. And Beth and I went there. We shot a bunch of video. We're going to be doing a YouTube video about it here in a little bit. But I bring it up because there's an event coming up this weekend, this Saturday at Terror Trader. You know whose birthday it is on January 27th? Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah, that guy, Joe Bob Briggs, the horror host. 
he's going to be there celebrating his birthday at the Terror Trader from 12 to 4 local time. I think that's mountain time. Beth and I are going. Uh, you know, we're in the area. Might as well go check it out, right? And it's going to be cool. Uh, I've never met Joe Bob Briggs before. He did give Monster Kid Radio the Silver Bolo Award a couple years ago, and I think that's awesome. I didn't bring my bolo. I didn't know I'd be seeing him. I had no idea he'd even been back in the States by now, but this is going to be fun. If you're going to be in the area, drop me a line and let me know. I'd love to meet up with you at the Terror Trader this Saturday, November 27th from 12 to 4 is when Joe Bob's going to be there. There will be cake. He does charge for selfies. I'm not sure what the exact price is, but bring some cash and yeah, check out the store. It is really, really cool. You can learn more about it over on their Facebook page or just go to terrortrader.com. That's in trader as in, you know, they, they trade goods, you know, they're a retailer, you know, terrortrader.com. Check them out. I think that's about it here at Monster Kid Radio. So I want to go ahead and wrap up by letting you know the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC. Is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Zeus. That is copyright 2023. Arno Decia and the Clockwork Wizards. It's off their release, a Split 7-inch with Semi-Vortex. Go check them out at arnodecia, then the number one, dot bandcamp.com. Or again, just follow the link in the show notes over monsterkidradio.net. However you find them, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we get into some kaiju action with Alistair Hughes, Steve Turek, and Mechagodzilla. The terror of Mechagodzilla is coming your way. Ciao. (laughs) 